0: Some courage this morning, so why don't we pray together? Lord, would you give me, would you give us uh, courage uh, to go where you'd have us go this morning? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the teaching this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Let me set the scene. Uh, John the Baptist is in jail. Uh, he'd been sent there by the uh, Roman emperor, uh, excuse me, Ro- local Roman ruler, Herod Antipas. Herod had fallen in love uh, with his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, Herodias. And they were carrying on, and John the Baptist had called him out on it. He said, it's not lawful for you to have her. And for speaking truth to power, uh, John had found himself imprisoned under Herod's fortress palace. You can read all about it in chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel. But our text today from Matthew 11 finds John sitting in a dingy, dank dungeon. Let's pick up the story beginning in verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, "'Are you the one who is to come?' Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. could also translate that last line, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's God's word. I have three children, ages 13, 11, and 9, and a phrase I have heard many times uttered, uttered in our home in vehement protest is, it's not fair. It's not fair. And as familiar as that scene might be to some of you, I submit this is a great truth and one of life's greatest truths. But here's the thing it's actually one of the hardest things for us to accept that that's right it's not fair it's not fair you say "Oh, I know that no we don't no we do not there's something in us that wants to get paid have you learned yet that fair is a four-letter word Jonah Hill yes that Jonah Hill the famous actor has about everything you could imagine a person could want, except that he also has panic attacks. I know a little something about those. You don't want those. Your body is telling you something. So, like a lot of people in Los Angeles, Jonah Hill started seeing a therapist. And he benefited so much from it, he made a documentary about it with his own money. Put it on Netflix. You can watch it. It's called Stuts, named after his teacher. Stutz calls this brooding over our past, being stuck in the maze, stuck in the maze. And then he said this line, your quest for fairness puts your life on hold. Boy, and that line hit me. Your quest for fairness puts your life on hold. And then Jonah Hill says, man, I have spent years of my life being stuck in the maze years. So have I. Why does Matthew, who was a consummate literary and theological artist, I mean even if you don't believe like I do, the Bible's inspired, all the more reason to admire Matthew and his gospel. It is composed with such exquisite care. Why does Matthew throughout his gospel interject include these strange interludes about John the Baptist. This scene in, John, in Matthew 11 caused the early church no small amount of embarrassment. If you were to go back and read how they commented on it, you'd notice how they bend over backwards to avoid what sure seems like the clear reading, that John the Baptist has become John the doubter. And they wondered, as we might, how could such a great man of God be filled with such anguish, such uncertainty to be brought to the point where he would ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And I want to ask you not to read over that line because it is a jaw jopping question. Because if anyone had reason to be certain about who Jesus was, it was John. I mean, John was a preacher and he preached some humdingers You can read all about it in Matthew chapter 3. I baptize with water, he said, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. John was a humble man, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Yes, John was a fiery preacher, and more than a preacher, John was a prophet. He even wore the uniform Garment of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, picked out with deliberate care. John picked out his own uniform to evoke comparisons with the great prophet Elijah. He's, who'd spoken of a Messiah who would come and clean house with an axe in one hand and a shovel in the other. John was bold when the most respected religious leaders of his day had come out to see what he was doing, baptizing, that's how he got his nickname, people from all throughout the region who'd come to hear John, the River Jordan, confess their sins, turn back to God, not unlike what you're reading about is happening at Asbury College today. It was a revival and John was at the center. Well, when a busload of respected clergy pulled up to see what all the commotion was about, You remember what John said to them? He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? A line I've thought about uttering to clergy a few times in my life. I mean, this guy, this guy, he ate large grasshoppers. That's what a locust is. That was his diet. He ate large grasshoppers and he drank honey to play the part the prophets had foretold. A voice of one crying in the wilderness because 400 years earlier, the last prophet before him, Malachi, and you can read all about it in Malachi chapter 4, had promised that one day a prophet like Elijah would come to prepare the way of the Lord. And John, he had come to understand that he had been cast by the Lord in this special role. Now think about that. What we call the Old Testament, that was John's Bible. He knew it by heart. Like you know the lyrics of your favorite song, he was steeped in it. So when they read that line in the temple, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, what must it have been like for John to have realized? That's me. I'm that guy. I mean, you'd have thought he was crazy unless he was that guy. I mean, he knew, John knew he'd been called by the Lord for this extraordinary purpose. And when John saw Jesus... He knew the light had come. You remember what he said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, send sin of the world, I have seen and testified that this man is the chosen one of God. Yes, John knew Jesus, and Jesus knew John. Jesus himself will say of John just a few verses later in our text in Matthew 11, For I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now, last time I checked, that's the only way you come into this world, born of a woman, (laughs) which means, well, you can put that on your tombstone, can't you? Here lies John, greatest ever born, Jesus. That's an endorsement. And John, because he knew those scriptures, like you know the faces of your own family, John knew what he would see when the promised Messiah had finally come. He will stand as a banner for the peoples and all the nations will rally to him. Isaiah 11. But John had seen no banner, just a carpenter from Nazareth who'd come to the Jordan River himself and asked John to baptize him. No, you should be baptizing me, John protested. So certain was he that he was looking at the promised Messiah, the one who would come and rescue, deliver, make all things right. So you can imagine with all this swirling in his heart, how devastated, heartbroken, crushed, and confused. Confused. John must have been, as chapter 11 opens. How? Knowing who I am and certain of that. I even wore the uniform. And knowing who you are. I called it just as I'd been called to call it. You're the Messiah. And I'm your prophet. I'm your guy. I mean, surely I was on the Lord's side and calling out that fox, Herod, all the people streaming to the Jordan River, the original, something's happening here. So then how did I find myself chained up, silenced, put away, shut up, unjustly in prison? I mean, if you are who I thought you were, how'd I end up here? After how long, we do not know, but it must have taken a lot. I mean, it must have taken a lot to break this great man's spirit. But at some point, we are told, when John heard in prison about what Jesus was doing, he sent word by his own disciples to ask Jesus one question. Matthew 11, verse 3, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And I want you with me just to try to imagine all the emotion. All the emotion that must have gone in to John being brought to ask that. It's a book I had on my bedside table for quite a few years. It's a biography of Jesus, which I commend to you, called The Lord. It's an old book by a writer named Romano Guardini. He writes a chapter on John the Baptist... And here's what he writes of this scene. Even a prophet's life is shaken by all storms, and saddled with all weaknesses. What agonizing hours must have shaped that message to Jesus? If you are who I've believed you to be, how'd I end up here? Well, I'm here to tell you I've heard versions of that question. Asked many times over the years by some good people. After a diagnosis, after an accident, some confounding, bewildering turn of events, I thought I was serving you, but if you are who I believed you to be, why this? I mean, I've tried to do the right thing. Well, John believed he was just trying to do the right thing. And aren't you glad, even though it embarrassed some of the early readers, Matthew included this story. I mean, if even a prophet's life is shaken and saddled with all weaknesses, what's it going to be like for the rest of us? We might be even more consoled by the way Jesus responds to John's query. Notice, does Jesus scold John? Does Jesus shame John for his doubts? Aren't you a preacher? After all you've seen? Nor notice in verse 4 does Jesus say, go and tell John what I am doing. What does Jesus say? Go and tell John what you, talking to John's disciples, John's friends, go and tell John what you hear and see. Just circle that word you for now. But keep reading verse 5. Jesus says, Tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now, that doesn't do it for us, if we're honest, because we missed the code. But don't forget, Jesus and John had also grown up together, friends from youth. And one thing they shared, they knew that they each knew what we call the Old Testament, their Bible, the Hebrew Bible like boys in my day, knew stats on the back of baseball cards and used to traffic in them with the secret satisfaction of a common language. Jesus and John knew the promises contained in their book. They knew it. So Jesus' reply is significant in every detail. I mean, after all, Jesus could have just said, tell John, yes, I'm the one, let not your heart be troubled. But why this litany? Why this litany and what's the message? Well, you'd have to know what I'm certain John immediately gathered. You see, Jesus was quoting verbatim from the prophet Isaiah. And we know that John knew Isaiah because that was the very prophet from whom John had come to understand his own identity. And Isaiah had written in our Bibles, you can just write these chapters down, 29, 35, and 61, that when the Messiah comes... Isaiah said, you'll know it by these signs. And in my mind's eye, I can imagine John's disciples going back to report to John. Did, did, you, did you ask him if he was the one? We did. And he said to tell you the blind will receive sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf will hear. And with each phrase, like a refrain from their favorite song, John would have picked up the tune. He says, yes, yes, keep going. And the dead are raised. Good news is preached to the poor. Is that it? John would have leaned forward the prison cell, listening intently. Did he say anything else? He did add one last line. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, I imagine that line landed like a punch. You see, because if you go back and read all those promises that Isaiah had foretold, that you will know the Messiah by these signs, one promise is conspicuously absent. And it was the one promise that John had been hoping to hear from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. When the Messiah comes, you'll know it by this sign. He will proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who were bound." That one was left out. It would be like leaving out the key line in a song that best friends knew so well, but then adding in the line, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And I think now we get the code telegraphing to his friend, Dear John, I am the Christ, the promised one, the Lamb of God. You needn't expect anyone else. I'm the one you've longed for and preached about. What God is doing in and through my life is the fulfillment of the deepest promises of all the prophets. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. I am the one in whom you have believed and yet it's that space that gives me the trouble gives us the trouble and yet you can trust me trust my promises trust my word not one of them will prove false and yet there's a whole new world possible in that space Sometime later, we don't know how long, but Matthew records the story in chapter 14. It's Herod's birthday. Herodias' daughter, Salome, came in and danced, pleased Herod and his friends so much that the king says to the girl, Ask for whatever you wish, half my kingdom, and I'll give it to you. And she pondered away and snuck to her, snuck away, and I inquired to her mother, for what should I ask? And Herodias, we know she was holding a grudge against John the Baptist, who was down in the prison. Herodias told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Now, this girl could could not have been more than 12 years old. So it is grisly when she comes back and says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist. Not wanting to lose face, Herod sent an executioner with orders to the dungeon to bring John's head on a platter. Have you ever noticed how reticent the Bible is to give the gory details that fill our stories today? Because they were better storytellers. They knew the imagination. So Matthew 14, verse 10 reads, And Herod sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Now, if you're reading the Bible for yourself, I hope you're asking, what in the world is this story doing in the Bible? I mean, it seems so, even chronologically, it's out of place. Not just John doubting in a prison cell, but then this horrific story, heads on platters, little girls. I mean, why is this, how is this part of the good news about Jesus? Jesus and I think maybe we're starting to pick up the code that following Jesus in this cruel world where a young girl plays a part in an unjust murder there will be times as there were even for the Lord's great prophet, there will be tears in the darkness as there were even for John there will be seasons of doubt The Bible neither hides this nor celebrates it, but rather acknowledges it as a fact. The great writer George MacDonald called doubts messengers of the living one to the honest. And I like that, that if you take God and His promises seriously, if you consider Him the living one, well, then you're going to have messengers sent to you. Doubts are like antibodies, They strengthen faith for the future, but only by attacking your faith in the present, if we're honest. Because if you're honest, you have your own version of, are you the one? Or was I wrong to place my faith in you? Because if you were who I thought you were, then how did I end up here? There's a great blessing for you. In this disappointment, if you will not stumble and fall away when I fail to come through and deliver in the way you'd expected, hoped, thought you deserved. I want you to really focus with me at, on verse 6 of Matthew 11. Notice how it starts blessed. Alert readers might know that's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew's version the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the merciful, sometimes called the Beatitudes. Blessed. It's a hard word to translate into English. The Greek word is makarios, usually translated blessed, but that might be a little misleading because it's not from the Hebrew word for blessed. That's a different Hebrew word. Jesus most likely would have used the word ashray sometimes translated happy. But even that's a little thin and misleading. Truth is, we don't really have a word in English that captures the beauty and complexity of this word. A more literal translation might be contented. Makarios, your life will flourish if. Your life will be lived the way it was meant to be lived, if. This is the only beatitude Jesus ever gives that's singular. Singular. Everywhere else is plural. Blessed are. Blessed are. But here it's singular. Our translation says, is the one who does not stumble. You could also translate, blessed is the one who is not offended. Or blessed is the one who does not take offense. Or blessed is the one who does not fall away. The word, if I say it in the original language, you can hear it yourself. The word is skandalizo means to cause to stumble or fall away. It refers to the experience of being offended or tripped up so that one falls away from the good and true path that leads to life. Even a prophet and his life is shaken by all storms and saddled with all weaknesses. Well, how about the rest of us? If you are who I thought you were, believed you to be. I have believed, and yet... In your hour of trial, there is a temptation. Same word in Greek, trial and temptation. Every trial is a temptation. And it's singular because this journey, though thank God we don't have to walk it by ourselves most of the time. Even John needed to rely on the testimony, the faith of his friends. Go and tell John what you hear and see. Because we know sometimes the word of Christ in our own heart is weak and we need the word of Christ in the mouth of another. You can't get through this alone. Not even the greatest born among women could. Okay? You need friends. Still, the journey of faith does pass through a question and I'm afraid it's always personal. When I disappoint you, when I don't come through in the way you were Expecting when you feel like you're falling, or maybe you have, will you yet not take offense? Scandalizzo, it's a reckoning. My ways are not your ways, and just to admit, we have no idea how God works, and yet, if you can trust me. And my word, even in this dark, dank dungeon, and it's not fair, and it shouldn't have happened, and I know it shouldn't have happened, but will you reach up with your right hand ask me to guide you? Then, then your life will flourish. Your life will flourish like a tree planted by streams of water Even if the very worst were to happen, but for those who love God, the present world is a perfectly safe place to be. What? The present world is a perfectly safe place to be. How do you get there? How could I come to believe that? Well, that's the blessing and the not being scandalized. Will you stay present? Will you still follow me? Even when you admit that you are so disappointed and it's just bad news on top of bad news, the Lord does not shame you. And I believe Matthew places this just here, just about the middle of his gospel, to prepare those of us who want to follow Jesus in this cruel world to show us by his story that life is difficult. I know that. No we, no, we don't. No, we don't. We moan. We complain. Even though nothing is ever made better by complaining, we complain about how hard and difficult, how tired, how heavy our burdens are, as if, well, as if we were expecting that life should be easy or easier or maybe just a little more comfortable. You might know one of the best-selling books of the last 25 years opens with the line, life is difficult. And the writer says this is a great truth and one of the greatest truths because once you truly accept that, then life is no longer difficult because once it's accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer upsets you. That's a journey. But you've come to accept that the process of being healed, do you want to be healed? You've come to accept that that process of recognizing, confronting your own broken code, your own weaknesses, this is hard and painful work, and there are no shortcuts. That's what you learn in the dungeon. That's what you learn in the dungeon, that there is a blessing for you in this. There are treasures in this darkness. There are treasures. Life is difficult and life is unfair. I know that. No, you do not. No, we do not. Because we spend weeks, months, and years of our life stuck in the maze. You know what the maze is? The maze always involves other people. And there's a part of you that wants fairness, It's when you only want to talk about or think about that other person and how they mistreated you and betrayed you and how wrong they were. And what you're telling yourself is, I'll move past this when, or I just need them to, I just wish they, waiting on them to recognize, to admit, to pay. I want to get paid. In your quest for fairness, put your life on hold. All the while you miss being present intimate with, the people who are still with you and who do still love you. You don't have time for that, to get stuck in the maze. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said, let the dead bury their own dead. You follow me. And along the way, you can thank God life is not fair. Because if life were always fair, if I only got what I always deserved, well, then where would I be? You sure you want to get paid? I mean, isn't that the real scandal? Scandalizo, the scandal of the cross, Paul calls it. I mean, when I feel like getting indignant, my own vehement protest, well, then you can look at the cross. And there's that face, like a mirror. It doesn't shame you, but says, you put me here. And it's singular. That's the truth about me. Oh, no, I'll never betray you. You sure you want to get paid? There's that face like a mirror. I'm here for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's not fair, mercy. It's not fair, grace. That's the scandal that we could be forgiven. And blessed are you if you're not offended at the links it took that God took because yes in this world you will have troubles life is difficult and not fair there will be heads on silver platters even and especially for those who want to follow Jesus in this cruel world and sometimes the story does not end the way we were expecting but I want to tell you I don't think John died distraught I can't prove that to you but I think the word of Jesus was so personal it was so personal you know I'm talking to you, friend. You know I'm talking to you. That it sustained him. Even when that executioner came a knocking. That John had the word of Jesus to him and it was enough. And in your time of trial, you too will have a choice. And I want to tell you, it will be personal. And you can do what you've always done before. You can stuff it. Numb Push down to push on through, emotionally disconnect. I want to tell you, that's not brave. Or you can do what John does here you can dare to feel. We can only heal when we can be with what we feel. And there's a phrase for this that I believe has even more resonance in a farming community. It's from Psalm 126, verse 5. Sow in tears. It's an image of a farmer going out to do the sowing, but his crop is his own tears. How do you sow your tears? Well, you have to feel them. You have to shed them. You have to pour them out. You have to stop numbing your pain. You take all that pain and confusion, and you, you, you call it up to cast it out. You entrust your tears. You finally say, I, I don't want to hold this anymore, and you don't have to. You take your tears to the one who understands. You entrust it to him. I mean, don't you know John wept in that prison? Don't you know? I hear you weeping. You take all those tears, and you know what? With those tears, there is a promise. That's the rest of the verse. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy or even shouts. Now, there's a promise that there is a joy that comes and that only comes on the other side of sowing your tears. There's a gift in grief. Like John, you can't make sense of it, and yet sow your tears. There's a letting go, and I want to tell you, you will feel like you're falling. You will feel like you're falling. But for the first time in your life, you will discover the only safe place in this world, the everlasting arms. Mother Teresa once wrote, I have come to love the darkness. She knew there's a joy hidden there. So you surrender to that face. Well, that's the gospel in John the Baptist story, according to Matthew. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, it does take such courage for us to sit with this pain and sow our tears. So, Lord, would you help us to be encouraged by your servant that there are treasures in the darkness? For those who dare to sow their tears, Lord, help us to know that we can trust you even when we don't understand. In the face of Jesus, amen.